Welcome to a new episode of the Creative Industry Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby. With the finale of Loki Season 2 airing recently, we welcome cinematographer Isaac Bauman, who joins us to talk about his work on Episode 1, 3, 4, 5 and 6 of the show. Please be warned that there are heavy spoilers in this episode. So let's jump into the conversation with Isaac. Hi, Isaac. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, we're here to talk about the second series of Loki, which just recently wrapped up its series finale. What can I say? Going by online, the chatter, the going by the week by week release as well is the the hype was building and it seems like uh, everybody really enjoyed it. Um, how have you found the reaction to the show? Incredible. It's been a great ride and it's wonderful to see that the audiences feel as excited and happy with the show as as we do, the people who created it. You have those sort of moments where with the show coming out week to week, and I think you shot every episode, but episode two, there was, do you ever have that sort of moment where people are like losing their mind and you just think, hold on a second, wait until next week when even more stuff is explained, even more things are coming. Like just keep, just like you think you're losing your mind now, wait until next week. I totally had that feeling. Yeah. That's one of the exciting, frustrating things about a, a TV show that's aired week to week. A hundred percent. I'm, I think we've kind of all become like very accustomed to the um, Netflix model of all of it in one day. And I guess having it week to week, you, you savor it and sort of experience it a lot more, especially like with people's work, because there's so much that goes into it. And like as an audience member, you don't really realize the sort of the storytelling aspect as well like as especially when something like loki where there's like multiverses involved people are jumping from different times as well it can be quite you need to really be on the ball not looking at your phone to see what's going on and to actually understand how they're going to resolve the situation big time oh yeah i mean the plot is one that requires a tremendous amount of attention just to go back to the beginning how did the project come about I was referred to Justin and Aaron, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who directed the season by a, a mutual friend of ours, Evan Katz, who I'd worked with before. Justin and Aaron were doing a pretty extensive DP search, and I think they um, were just getting exhausted by it. And they were discussing that with Evan, and he was like, you know what, you should check out Isaac. And before I knew it, I was on a Zoom call with Marvel not with Justin and Aaron. You have to clear that hurdle first. And uh, that call went really well. Then I met with Justin and Aaron over Zoom and I pitched. I think I ended up getting the job because I pitched to them what I later learned is similar to what they pitched to the studio to themselves get the job, which is Let's use this second season as an opportunity to shake things up and do everything differently. The first season was just so good. It was so memorable and visual and spectacular that we knew we had a lot to live up to. But what we realized was we would do the show a disservice 
by attempting to emulate the style of our predecessors and their work on the show. What they had done, we wanted to do, ironically, which is do whatever they wanted to do. That's why the show looked so cool, because they leaned into their strengths. You know, specifically Autumn Durald Arkhipov, the cinematographer. The look of that show is very reminiscent of the look seen in her body of work in general, in my opinion. And I think that realizing how the show just looked like her work made me feel inspired. Well, what if the show looked like my work? Because I have a much different approach to the craft than Autumn does. Our work, our previous bodies of work before Loki, you know, they share very little in common. And so I realized, I mean, I was just particularly ill-suited to carry on doing the same thing she had done. So when I got the interview, what I pitched was, well, why don't we do it the way I shoot things? And they didn't buy at all. Eventually, I mean, that that call wasn't about negotiating what pieces of what were going to be included. It was just, it was really just about the idea. It was, I wanted to do things differently. And what I didn't know at the time, but it was turned out was that they themselves wanted to do things very differently. So I think when they heard me, you know, even though all of my ideas, you know, weren't necessarily exactly where they wanted to take it, it was just like this kid's thinking in the right way. The first thing that you saw, which is quite, amazing to hear is the fact that everybody sort of pitched the same idea without actually realizing they've pitched the same idea and kind of taking as you said what was so good about the first series and then leading into your own strengths in how to continue the good work that people have started but then also adding your own little spin to it maybe this is a little bit cheap for my uh, question but it's it kind of it goes there as well because when I was watching this show the second series has a very distinct look compared to the first series and after watching I think it was episode four I was very curious to know why does it look that way and I read that you you change from LED lights to tungsten and the whole idea was to create that sort of 60s Soviet vibe and it also got me thinking because of that look when they're in the TVA and using the tungsten lights. It also created like a weird radioactive haze. Um, So it made me think very much of like, they've gone for that sort of vibe of Chernobyl with the loom being that radioactive force and that reactor going, They you've created that look to have that sort of Chernobyl look. So to get to my question, which is a very long way around, sorry, is that what made you decide to sort of change from uh, LEDs to tungsten and how did you go about trying to pitch the idea because it was so different to then also talking with other department heads to um, implement uh, the use of tungsten and how they had to think about that in their designs the idea of tungsten came from our approach of creating a film emulation type of look and not just film in general but a specific type of film and a specific era of film we wanted the movie to look or the the show to look uh similar to 2001 a space odyssey for example amongst other references and uh those films all used tungsten right so the, the, the bottom line is tungsten looks different than led there's a lot of side-by-side tests out there that show you that it doesn't but 
what you see in a side-by-side -side test in a test environment in like a rental house or whatever, it, it just doesn't account for those subtle differences that present themselves as you see, as it spans across an entire season of television or and even within a scene. Tungsten looks different than LED. It looks richer and more complete than LED. Technically speaking, it has a broader spectrum. You know, when you look at a spectrograph of light, uh, what you see is that it is comprised of, you know, white light, like sunlight. It's every color. You know, it's there's red, blue, green, yellow, orange, purple, the whole, it's all in there. And it's balanced. It's just that it's all in there relatively evenly. You know, there's dips and, and whatnot. And with tungsten light, there's a bit of a, a rounded uh, mountaintop around your orangey red zone of the spectrum. You know, tungsten light looks warm, so it makes sense. Whereas LED light doesn't have that. LED light has more blue in the spectrum that it emits. And so even though technically by eye, you can like match them, you know, on the dial, it, there's just something that's always going to be missing, in my opinion, from LED light compared to tungsten. And the most natural light sources we have on Earth, the sun and fire, those are both incandescent sources. They're coming from chemical combustion reaction, which is similar to the way tungsten works. There's no combustion in tungsten, but there's still this super hot, like overheating of metal elements that's very similar to a fire type of effect that you see on the sun or in a fireplace. So it just reads as more natural. We as animals have this innate understanding of lighting and what's natural and what's not. It extends, you know, much beyond the, the barriers of, of tungsten or incandescent light. But that's one of the things that, that I believe we have an innate understanding of is, does this light feel real or not? And sometimes LED feels real because the source that's motivating it is LED. Like in an office, sure, yeah, LED feels real. But um, a lot of the time, LED light just feels kind of thin to me it doesn't have a body and a volume to it the same way tungsten does and it's something that not everyone agrees with and it's something that's hard to demonstrate in side-by-side -side tests but nonetheless it's there and i'm perfectly happy making a tremendous amount of sacrifices to use tungsten light you know it's a battle that i gladly fight every time and it is a battle that needs to be fought a little bit because it's not necessarily more expensive but it requires a lot more power more amperage a lot more cabling, a lot more weight being lifted around. The, the units are a lot heavier, a lot more man hours rigging, a lot more safety concerns, a lot more heat on the stage. And we were shooting in the summer, so that was definitely an issue that came into play. It's just, it's something you have to bend over backwards for a little bit. You also can't dim it without it changing color temperature. You know, you can't get consistent color out of it at different levels. Um, you can't change it other colors. You really handcuff yourself to what it's giving you. But to me, all of those things are worth it because it just looks better. And in our case, it looked more like our references, you know, because they used tungsten back then. That's all they had. They didn't have HMI or LED. So that is what led us to tungsten. It's fascinating to hear the whole idea of like, how much has to be thought about if you're using a specific light like style, should I say, like tungsten, and how much thought has to be put into just lighting like the one stage and certain scenes, or it kind of does blow my mind that 
there is like a science to it is also a look to it and you're saying as well how like yeah in testing great you have in a testing situation they side by side they look the same but once you probably start adding color start putting in a set start putting in the color palettes that a costume designer will have the color palettes that a production designer will have the the set decorating and items that they need to litter the scene in then that will completely change how you're going to be testing and using tungsten but i think as well like there is a to say it, it's like a weird juxtaposition that it mutes it, but then it also makes it very vibrant, the colours. Mm-hmm. And I think as oh, well, yeah. and I think as well with the TVA, like it has that really weird brown, but then also really vibrant orange that is muted, but it still has that uh, luscious colour to it. Yeah, big time. Yeah, tungsten makes colours in wardrobe and production design look great. It's also very beautiful and flattering on skin. It's just a win-win across the board. But yeah, it, it didn't require a lot of coordination with other departments. You were asking about that. I mean, you know, mostly just the lighting and the rigging departments. Well, the production designer, Kasra Farahani, was very much in the loop. And he was excited about it from the minute that the idea came up. Because he understands that tungsten has a flattering effect on sets, you know, as well as, as actors. So we were all excited to see the vividness and the saturation that it would bring out these specific color tones. Because the production designer, whose name escapes me, sorry. Kasra Farahani. Thank you, Kasra. Because they worked on the first series, I can imagine as well that it's for them coming on, coming back even, that it's not just going to be the same as before, that there's going to be LEDs, but now he probably has to change his designs a lot more and also change his uh, change their colours that they're using on the sets. But with... This being the second series as well, and there is the sets being reused. So obviously stuff like from the TVA, there's also he who remains his lair. When it comes to returning to sets like that, like how do you go about shooting those areas differently to how it was previously? I think when we're in the TVA, there is a lot more use of uh, wider lenses and uh, whip pan moments um, to follow what the action is happening and to sort of really, mm. it, it, to be, it feels like you're more of a sort of point of view rather than a static action. Yes, absolutely. That that style was brought to the show by uh, the, the new lead directors this season, Justin and Aaron. They have shot a whole bunch of indie movies going back over a decade now. And that's a style that they've developed over the course of that indie film career. You know, it's just very pragmatic in indie film, having a handheld camera. You can move faster. You can get more shots all at once. You know, we often try to combine getting multiple shots that we need in a single take using a handheld camera that floats around. So it's practical. um, And it feels, uh, it gives the, the show or whatever you're shooting, the production, more of a feeling of immediacy and this organic quality to it. You know, it feels a little bit like you're really there because when you can feel that human who's operating the camera, they, they're they like a proxy for the audience, right? It's like you're kind of throwing the audience headlong into the scene in a way that when you use handheld that you can't get through any other camera support platform, in my opinion. So it it kind of kills all the birds with one stone. It makes it feel more real and more immersive. And it makes it easier to photograph those scenes from a logistical, practical standpoint. For example, we almost never, 
almost never. There's probably a couple times you can find, but we don't shoot inserts. The insert is just something that's captured as part of this larger moving piece that is also shooting other elements that will be used for other shots on the shot list. You know, you might get someone's someone's close up. Well, when they're doing something with their hands, that just goes down and gets the insert and then goes back up to their close up without ever needing to cut and do a separate setup for the insert. Uh, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. And we're uh, Loki season two is the only Marvel production ever to not do any reshoots. And so we didn't miss anything, didn't miss anything. And we also never went over time and we didn't go over schedule. We were under budget. Like it just, and, and, and I attribute a lot of that to this handheld style, to be clear. I think it was that that Justin and Aaron brought that made the production one of the things that made the production so successful, both creatively and logistically, budgetarily, so on. So I, I've spoken to someone else who worked on the show and they mentioned to me that there was no reshoots, which is in this sort of day and age, quite astonishing. Um, considering there's always, I guess reshoots happen because there's something that's been missed or there might, there might be something that needs to be added because certain story elements change within the edit. It's just um, sometimes a bit natural because you might have a scene or a joke that might have worked at the time, but then doesn't work in the whole context of the show or film. But even having a, a visual style, when you're saying with the inserts, instead of setting up another camera shot, putting it in, for example, as a tripod, you're getting everything within that one take rather than and one setup rather than doing multiple takes in multiple setups, which is going to be time consuming. I think um, as audience members, the, the average audience member doesn't realize that on average, you might do shoot three pages a day, mm. maybe slightly less. And when you think about uh, if the episode is between 45 minutes to an hour long, uh, it doesn't feel, it doesn't, you as audience members, like it doesn't feel that much to shoot, but once you actually start getting to the flow of it and shooting three pages here or four pages there, it does it does build up. It does. That's one of the things that was my favorite thing. People ask me, what was it like shooting Loki? Like as if you could answer that, like what was it like shooting Loki? But um, the best that I've come up with, the most like reflective of my experience in a relatively succinct form is that it was just fun and easy the whole time. It was the funnest, easiest job I've ever had. And I really mean that. It, you know, Technically, it's not the easiest job in some ways because the, the scope of it and the amount of planning and homework and office hours and on-set hours, you know, it's absolutely titanic. But at the same time, there's just so much support. And... You're never in a rush. I mean, occasionally, you know, you might be running behind or whatever, but basically we had enough time to prep it. We had enough time to plan everything. And then we had enough time to shoot everything. We don't shoot a ton of material every day. We shot 15 days per episode, which is pretty unheard of for a television show. And, you know, the first show I started on was seven days an episode, same runtime, same screen time. And so Marvel and this production specifically really has done themselves a tremendous service by ensuring that their creatives have enough time 
to do their jobs properly without feeling like they're under the gun or rushed. And that was very much the case. It was uh, get it done on time, but that time that you're given is reasonable. So I was just trying to do it through the sort of maths in my head because I think when I worked on one show, I think we had, I think the same seven days per episode and that was a 10 episode order Hmm. and that felt quite tight. And I think we went, 80% 80% of the show we went over by like two hours a day, which at the time you think great, but I think over a whole shoot, it actually, be, it, it can be really taxing on you. You think because, great because you're getting paid more. You're getting OT. Yeah, exactly. But then it's also, you think, hang on a second. When does my day end and when does the next day begin because of the whole broken turnaround and all that jazz and yeah. working up being like, okay, if I get home at half 10, and I can get up at, you know, I get enough sleep for eight hours if I get up at this time. But amazing to think that 15 days as well, that's quite a lot um, per episode. It is. It's generous, but it's necessary. If you want to deliver something at the absolute highest level of quality, which is what we're striving for on Loki, that's what it takes, in my opinion. Yes. And as well, like, it's not just dramatic moments in the show. There's a lot of VFX elements. Oh, um, yeah, set pieces, all that. Which leads me to kind of like segues nicely to my next question in terms of with a show like Loki where it's very physically VFX heavy, how do you incorporate that into your shoot? Because there'll be times when you're watching a screen, so there'll be a bit moment where Victor Timely is walking out onto the walkway and then all of a sudden he just turns uh, into spaghetti. Obviously, we don't see the actor turn into spaghetti in real life because it's not. That would be one crazy method acting way of doing something. Um, well, he but, is a method actor. Yeah, but but <laughs> as a method actor, it would be pretty crazy if you just be like, "All right, turn into yeah. spaghetti." But how do you incorporate VFX into your shooting? And did you also shoot on the volume for this show? We didn't shoot on the volume. Marvel doesn't love the volume and for good reason. You know, they've done a, they have a lot of experience with the volume and they have discovered through that experience what its limitations are. So they're hesitant to use the volume, to be perfectly frank. But I would suggest that, yeah, that hesitation is merited. And also, you know, the volume, it, there's pluses and minuses, you know, it's it's great for DPs because you can see what your composition is. When you're shooting on a blue screen, you don't know what you're composing for because it's just blue back there. The the composition is going to be achieved by the VFX team in a lot of ways. You're only deciding the placement of the subject in the frame, that element of composition. Now, the thing that's terrible about volumes, where ultimately I like that Marvel pushes back against them, because I think I'm more of a blue screen advocate myself, Obviously, they're tools, different tools, different applications. But the bottom line is blue screen is better for lighting because the volume is very sensitive to light. It's very sensitive to what direction the light's coming from. You know, it's like the volume's sort of this 360 environment, right? The ceiling, for example, is an LED, so you can light from up there. But oh, wait, you turn that ceiling light that's part of the volume up enough and it's washing out the wall. You Even if using the volume itself as the light, there's a lot of things you can't do, let alone bringing your own lights on the set. You bring any light onto the set, unless it's super controlled, it's going to wash all over that back wall. Hard light, forget about it. You know, technically there's ways, you know, you can lift the ceiling and position certain lights somewhere. And occasionally you'll see material that's shot on a volume that has hard light in it, usually is a backlight coming from behind the volume. But there's a lot of effort 
that goes into achieving that. And there's a lot of precision and a time that it takes to make sure you're going to have that hard light. Um, you really have to bend over backwards to do creative lighting on the volume. And, and that's why you see 90% of content that's shot on volumes is just kind of, you can, now that we've seen enough of it, you, at least I, I can recognize it right away, just by the way the light appears on the actors. It's like this very particular type of ambient light, you know, because the qualities of light are often defined by where the source is in relation to the subject and just the shape of the volume that it has and the fact that it's LED light coming off of it, and the fact that all volumes are pretty much the same size, and those panels are all the same distance from the actors, because you always have the have to have the actors like right in the center of it. So they're always like, no matter where they are in the scene, they're just always like right in the center of the volume, basically the the floor, the light on them always looks the same like it the color of it changes but it's like there's a look that it has that it and it's not the way that it looks outside on an overcast day it's the way that it looks on a volume and i think audiences are starting to get wise that like i watched ahsoka with um my wife and she started to kind of pick out she was like hey was this was that on a volume and she didn't know exactly what she was seeing that tipped her off that it was shot on a volume but that was one of the things it's this sameness of of light that is always there you know whether you're in a desert in obi-wan or you know a purple sky red forest planet in ahsoka light kind of looks the same on the actors i think as well like you see like with with the volume it is a cool piece of tech when yeah. you see b- behind oh, yeah. the scenes and you're seeing this and you're like, wow, like I can't believe this is where we're heading tech wise because of what's being created and how you can probably just change whatever you have, uh, yeah, whatever incredible. area you're there. Um, Amazing. But you're right. It is become a bit of a, I think as an audience member, you kind of start noticing uh, little bits um, of like, oh, actually this does look like the volume. This is, and the, the where the wall meets the floor, like you either see it because it, it's out of focus in the background, but you can kind of tell where it is. And the perspective, even when they blend it in VFX, you can sometimes tell where suddenly it's just a flat surface that has a three-dimensional image on it begins and where like the real three-dimensionality of space ends. You can totally tell the more you see it, the more you can tell. And then it's just as bad when they try to hide it. You get these sets that are like built up that deliberately hide the lip of the volume, but they're like all, then all of these sets are the exact same size. It's just like, you're always on a set that's like 40 feet in diameter or whatever, and has like a, a lip on it. And it's like, you start to pick up on this. I think the volume is a tremendous piece of technology that has a lot of potential. And there's something that I want to use it for in particular that I feel it's currently under you right now. It's being used in an imaginative way to depict worlds and some of the, the theatricality I'm talking about. And that's how I think of it. Isn't necessarily bad. It's like, you can embrace the artifice of the volume and just like kind of let it be, you know what guys, we shot this on a volume. We're not trying to hide it. It's just like these old, you know, like the star Trek sets back in the day where it was always the purple sky and the rock back there whatever and you could tell it was just a small set it's like the new more high-tech version of that and i think if you let go of needing to hide that it's on a volume and you brace embrace it as more of a theatrical like stage type of aesthetic it can be more effective also pickups like i want to use every movie i shoot every tv i want to shoot they tear down the sets, you move out of the locations and they're like, oh, sorry guys, we can't, even though we realized we're missing a reaction shot or an insert 
or, you know, we need to rewrite a scene to do the dialogue. You always end up shooting the redone scene like somewhere else. They figure out how to put it in a location that you have coming up or you're currently working in or you have easy access to. But I feel like we should be scanning every set that we shoot. You know, you just do a quick like the, this tech will get better. Like, whoop, you scan it and then you always have a 3D model of it. And then when you find out, oh, shit, we need to reshoot the scene in the diner not the whole scene, but like that bit of back and forth, then, then we can just, just get the booth, just get the booth and put the whole diner, put the booth on the volume. And then you have, you're in the diner again. And it's like, it's fine. It's better than not getting it. And you can shoot it in a way that hopefully the original footage is such that, you know, because the background is just always out of focus when you're in coverage of people. I'm not, you can't shoot wide shots on it, but like if you're in a medium shot of someone sitting in a booth in a diner, like the volume, perfect. That's how I see it being used and how I would prefer productions would think of it. I, I would like to think anytime pickups are on the table, volume, let's do a volume day, get all the pickups we need on one volume day. Sounds like a money saver. We may have to make a note of that yeah. just in case uh, uh, any of those ideas need to come up. But like the use of volume, there's some shows that use it seamlessly. I think there's, I think yeah. when you watch something like the Batman, for example, when they're on uh, rooftops, that's when I think they have it at sort of they can change this sunset to sunrise and not worry about it yeah. during their day you and they're not chasing the sun. That, you can tell that it's flat back there, in my opinion. And Greg Fraser's talked about this. You he when you watch those scenes, they're using long lenses and shooting wide open because he knows that if they didn't, it would look like a flat wall with a 2D image on it. You know, and I think you can still tell a little bit. I agree that it's really, really good. And those scenes, they look amazing. I mean, the lighting, the cinematography, it's like chef's kiss, beautiful, perfect. But I'm just saying there are tells like. If you know what to look for, you can tell that what is back there is a two-dimensional image on a two-dimensional surface. It's not perfect. You know, there's always going to be, which is why I'm suggesting what we need to do is embrace the theatricality of it. I think it's like, just let it be what it is, you know? And some people, you know, a lot of audience members won't notice, but it's like, I think we just have to not bend over backwards to try to hide the fact that we're shooting on a volume in all circumstances. I think it's okay. To let, you know, and I don't think the Batman gets away with with uh, selling it as something other than a volume. I think there's one scene as well, like it's the when the train goes past, you can kind of just see it on the sides where it like sort of not necessarily frays, but you can see that mm. it's like where the um, <clears throat> screens sure. end. But anyway, I feel like we're, we're going off a little bit yeah, yeah. Um, away. I think another thing about the show as well is like, this is maybe as like a maybe a design point of view, but also a cinematography point of view is um you get to jump during different timelines. Um so you can so we can look into the sort of more present day, the 19th century by going to the World's Fair. It, there's also the modern day, uh, when we get to see um, Mobius in his uh, normal life, Casey escaping from Alcatraz and even Brad in the 60s um, going to his events. As a cinematographer, um, because you're jumping from different points in history, how do you go about creating looks uh, for the different time periods? And even though there are times where it can be very distinctive, how do you want to draw the audience member in with your look? 
Yes, uh, that's a good question. And it's a balancing act, right? Because you want to take any opportunity you're given to do something a little different, differentiate the look, make something a little bit more bespoke, more custom for a particular chapter of the story. And that's very much what we did. At the same time, you have to make sure what you're doing allows that new look to fit in harmoniously with the overall tapestry of looks that you're creating. So the key there is just deciding what things are going to change and what things can't change, you know? And so with time periods specifically, what we did was look at them and ask several questions. It's like, well, what did it actually look like at that time period? What did still photography look? What what were film stocks that were popular at that time? What film stocks were available? What was being used? What do stills look like? What do movies look like? You know, what's the style of camera work in those movies? What's the style of lighting in the movies at the time? You know, and you can't take everything from each one of these sources of inspiration, but you just kind of think about these things generally and then take what grabs you. So, you know, some time periods are inspired by what I think it actually looked like then. Other time periods are inspired by movies that are set at that time, but weren't shot at that time. Other ones, other time periods are inspired by movies that maybe aren't even set in that time, but were shot at that time, you know, and so on and so forth. Each each time period has a different source of inspiration. You know, like the 1800s drew a lot from Roger Deakins' work in Assassination of Jesse James. And it also drew from Wally Pfister's work in The Prestige and Deakins again in True Grit. I'd say those were the biggest sources of inspiration there, as well as okay, well, what does the still photography at that time look like? It had, they at that time, it was that like daguerreotype type of like super large format aesthetic. Um, and so we used the 65 lens, which is longer than lenses we usually use because just because it subjectively felt to us like it had kind of that old school aesthetic to it. And in the 80s, the 80s are kind of like a poppy, vibrant time. And so we went with a more saturated look. You know, because the show's not super saturated, but we just, we did it and we, we, we put the camera on a dolly, which we never do. You know, we, there's no zooms or handheld in the eighties. You know, we'd use kind of like conventional Hollywood studio filmmaking and saturated it more. London, of course, was about trying to create the grimy, because we think of London as a beautiful, antiquated, regal kind of city, but really in the seventies, London was super grimy. And that's what I wanted it to feel like. Um, street grime is what I called that look. We, there's no like green fluorescent lighting anywhere else in the entire season, except for in London. And then those street lights are kind of hard. And so, yeah, that's that, you know, each time period was kind of asking what will make this feel the most definitively like that time period as possible. I guess having that, different time periods to play with you could really flex in terms of your style and you because there is so many different uh things that you need to consider during that time so with the world's fair what kind of came to my mind a little bit as well as back to the future part three when doc and marty are walking around when they have the uh, festival going on and that kind of uh, made me think about that whilst watching Loki season two um, on top of assassination of Jesse James because with the sort of more of the awe of like seeing the scope of like what's going on and um, the time period as well and also the fact that like HH uh, Holmes gets a mention as well where 
there's that little fear factor as well that could creep in whilst the protagonists are running around. And then also when you mentioned about London as well, yes, every, we we have a very much a romantic idea of London and how it looks. But yeah, during that time of the 70s and the fact that it's kind yeah. of come out of that period of like World War Two of like the rebuild and how... Uh, various political movements were going on in terms of like um, like with punk for example as we see in the yeah, show yeah. Um, that's another big thing and then also having that sort of glitz and the glamour of the west end kind of makes you think about uh, people like the cray twins for example and that sort of side of like the glamorous side of it so like the, the glitz and glamour should i say big time big time a lot of fun to play around with all that stuff each the only time period we didn't really try to distinguish was the 90s where uh Keith character's variant OB's variant is a Caltech professor in the 90s because that's where the gang reconvenes so we actually tried to photograph that in a style that was as similar to our style in the TVA our house style as possible you'll see in the 90s it's just wide lenses handheld all that that's the only time period and but that was very intentional it was like, we're saying that this time period is now the the home turf of our gang and the show. That's what we were saying by applying the house style to it. It does show like how beautiful it actually looks in each period. And you kind of, you don't, you don't sort of like overshadow other departments as well. You show off their beautiful uh, design and costume and production design. And I tried to overshadow them. Just kidding. <laughs> I tried to overshadow them. They were just too good. It didn't work. Well, what can you say? I think when when everybody's like working in tandem and yeah. and yeah, what can I say? Chef's kiss. Yeah. Before I hit to like my final question, I've got a penultimate yeah. one. And in terms of there's with a show like Loki, you'll be working with various directors, and obviously mm-hmm. you have a show running on on the show who mm. is basically the captain of the ship and is going to steer everybody in the same direction. But at the same time, each director will have their own way of working and directing and sort of will have their strengths or weaknesses in what happens on a shoot day. As a cinematographer working with different directors, how does that affect you when it comes to the planning process? And how different is it working with different directors on different episodes? Well, the plan was for Justin and Aaron to, along with myself, really establish a look for the season that would be contiguous and unviolated for the span of the show. We did the best job that we could. We put a lot of rules together and it was very clear what uh, the show was meant to be and how it was supposed to look. Um, When other directors get in there, things do tend to change, you know, because there's just elements of the style or the rules that um, that director feels don't apply to their particular story or a moment within their story or whatever. So the rules always get broken when there's multiple directors. But the important thing isn't that the rules are never broken. It's just that for the most part, the spirit of the law is adhered to. You know, it's that classic, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law thing. And I think because we went to such an exhaustive effort to outline what 
we wanted and what the spirit of the law was meant to be. Everyone, all the directors did just such a good job, you know, honoring um, that and having, you know, maintaining more than enough of the integrity of of the core aesthetic of the show. Any of their deviations were relatively minor. So yeah, it's it's about clarity. It's about communication and clarity. It's about putting everything in writing, basically. You know, I made a fairly exhaustive Bible that was shared with everyone. Uh, and it just, it really helped get everyone on the same page, whether they were the producers or the directors or the gaffer or the key grip or the camera operators, like makeup department, everyone in the entire show was aware of what we were going for very explicitly from very early on in pre-production even. So I think that helped really homogenize the look as much as possible. As you said, the letter of the show as well, when you have people, everybody wants to go in the same direction, but it's also a case of adding your own little artistic mm. flair yep. um, to what's happening. And sometimes as well, like it's it's a very collaborative medium anyway. So you you need to be open to, oh, something might not be working here, so maybe we can change it there. Or if somebody, two, two, two people could have, uh, could be reading something and have two different ideas. So then it's like, how can you merge the two into one? And what could be the the most efficient money saving wise in terms of shooting days, but then also looking the best on screen as well? Totally. And I think as well, like even though Loki is a TV series, it does kind of feel like a six hour film, six hour five maybe just six. Under six. yeah six yeah we would say about a six hour film so when you have all those different uh chunks coming together there has to be uh, a coherent um product at the end of it as well absolutely just to hit with my final question what was your favorite scene to shoot favorite scene to shoot wow that's a good question i guess i can talk about the uh, season finale now. My favorite scene to shoot, well, I guess I probably have a lot of favorites, but um, I loved shooting Tom ascending the throne at the episode, in the end of episode 206. Not because it was particularly interesting to shoot as a scene. I mean, it was just full on blue screen, blue stairs, blue wall, blue. The throne was blue. There wasn't even a chair there. So... But what I loved about it was understanding how meaningful it was. It was like that day on set, it was just so special because we knew it was the end of Loki's journey as a character, for now at least. I mean, yes, it's possible that he returns. Tom has said as much. But in a lot of ways, it really is closing uh, the book on the character arc that started in the first Thor movie. Because he's now, you know, because he started as a selfish bad guy and now he's like a good guy who performs the most selfless act you can possibly perform which is to sacrifice yourself for the greater good and you could feel the weight of that journey and that story coming to a close that day you know tom a lot of it had to do with tom himself you know he was very much feeling that and you could tell that for him even though he knew, you know, anything could happen, Loki could be back. He was approaching it as if this was the final time you were ever going to see Loki on the screen. And that was tremendously emotional. So to be there with him in that moment, 
just felt remarkably special. And that's probably my favorite day of photography. Solid choice. I think it must be feel weird as an actor knowing that you've played a character for so many years to then yeah. be like, potentially this could be your last thought, you know, last day on set. And then just thinking, do you know what, if this is going to be my last day, then I'm just going to throw everything into this and just really end it on the biggest high note yeah. as possible. I know I said that was my last question, but something actually popped into my head as well. Yeah. Um, because the, so the final episode, there's a lot of jumping around and as an audience member, you don't really know how many times Loki has actually redone certain scenes, yeah. uh, certain scenarios, sorry. And um, it must be probably about in its millions, I reckon. If I were to yeah, give, a, uh, give sure. a, if I were to throw a ball, uh, a ballpark figure. Now, what, what I'm curious to know about, though, is when it comes to shooting those scenes, um, there's obviously a script of a breakdown of how each scene would transition to each scene. And a lot of it happens in the edit, but with you guys, you're basically building the foundations of it. When it came to shooting those scenes, was it a case of being quite strict with what was written on the paper or was there uh, an ability to um, improvise the the scenarios of what was happening between um, Loki trying to figure out how to fix things? You know, we didn't know ourselves because a lot of that's edit dependent. So we ended up shooting just a ton of repetitions of him doing things in different ways and failing. I mean, there's a lot of footage you don't see in there. But for example, when it's exploding, you know, we showed because that's what that loop culminates in is the explosion of the loom. So, for example, we shot that explosion of the loom, you know, like a dozen different ways with Loki in different positions the whole time. Um, and, and then I think some of it was actually left to editorial. Like, I don't know this for sure, but I think the repetition of Mobius's line this time, because Loki comes and he said this, he always says this time, we're going to do this, this time we're going to say that. And then you see Owen saying this time again and again and again from the same position, which I think is just them using the clip over and over again of like the one time he said it like that. But it's it's just so funny. They did such a good job editing that sequence together. Okay, because I always thought that there is probably just so much that you guys shoot and it's down to the edit to see what works best and how each sort of line is going to uh, land. Because I think personally... I, I think Owen Wilson is incredible on the show and he has that sort of blind naivety to it all. But at the same time, you feel like the surrogate to it all. Cause you're like, oh, hang on a second. How many times has this been now? Um, mm -hmm. Especially if you try to keep up with what's going on. Isaac, thank you so much for your time today. Loki season two streaming now on Disney plus. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure. Sorry for the spoilers. Just go out and watch it. If you have seen it, go out and watch it again for Isaac and watch Isaac's work. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you again. You take care and bye-bye. Adios. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.